Hi, I'm Rob Price, and I'm talking to some inspirational leaders of some of the leading AI and Gen AI businesses in the world. Welcome to Futurize. Hi, I'm Mariam. I'm the co-founder and CEO of TitanML. At TitanML, we're making LLM deployments significantly more secure, scalable, and performant for enterprises. And we're doing that through building out the infrastructure layer um, in LLMs. So my personal background is by training. Um, I was a physicist at Oxford. Um, and then I went into the world of uh, com- uh, the world of work and, and the commercial world while my co-founders were doing their PhDs and postdocs in um, computational quantum computing and machine learning. And we came together a couple of years ago to form Titan ML. Fantastic. And I, I imagine some people listening, their experience of large language models might be limited to what they've seen on ChatGPT at best, maybe a few more. But there's lots of things happening out there. So can you talk to us a bit more around what you're seeing in the dynamicism of the market? Because one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is how would you, how would anyone keep up? So I guess in part, you're enabling organizations to keep up. Yeah, the market is moving incredibly quickly. Probably it's the fastest moving market, um, well, probably ever. Um, And, you know, that's incredibly exciting. However, a lot of our clients come to us with that exact concern of how do I kind of keep up with the latest models? How do I keep up with the latest techniques, et cetera, et cetera. And my short answer is you really shouldn't be. I think um, sometimes what we can see is machine learning teams, especially in enterprise, um, is they can sometimes get distracted by what's out there on Twitter and what the latest paper is saying. But actually what they should be focusing on is solving whatever their business problem is. Um, And we want to enable people to focus just on their business problems by us taking care of the infrastructure. So for us, it's our job to, you know, look at the latest papers and make sure we're integrating the latest technology. But I don't want any machine learning engineer to have to worry about that. And all of that should just be table stakes in in a infrastructure platform. Um, but I, I can often see that we're getting distracted by the noise and the hype. Um, and actually we need to be focusing on, you know, what is the technology that's available and can it solve my business problem and solving on, on focusing on the business problem rather than the latest shiny new thing. And, and in many ways, I mean, I've, I've grown up in a world where organizations have put in place big outsource agreements to big technology companies for many, many years at a go. But in a sense, it would be mad to do that at the moment, because how would you be able to possibly predict what will happen in two months time let alone two or ten years time so are you finding that organizations are recognizing that and therefore see the value in having not quite a broker but almost a broker in terms of how do I get the right answer at this point in time or are you still seeing organizations thinking that mindset of five-year agreements It really depends, unfortunately. So when we sign five-year long agreements or when we sign these very, very long-term deals, we're signing them to solve a business problem. And if the technology currently exists to solve that business problem, then you're fine solving that agreement. You know, you know, that it's just execution at that point. Yeah. Um, but it becomes difficult when you're trying to hit a moving target. 
and you don't know if you have the right partner on board to help you hit that moving target. That's where it becomes incredibly difficult. What we've seen a lot of teams doing is trying to in-house a lot of the almost research capabilities and research expertise um, so they themselves can keep on top of it and not have to outsource it constantly, um, which I've seen you know mixed results for. Some have phenomenal research teams, other it becomes a little bit of a distraction from actually solving what they should be solving. Um, I think, unfortunately, the jury is still out as to how quickly will the landscape move and how will that affect long-term, you know, agreements like that. And, and my, I mean, my, my next question is very much focused around, there'll be a variety of people listening um, and some might be um, technical within an organisation, some might be commercial or procurement or exec. So, so for those different types of people listening, what, what's your pitch to them? Because I think from what you've just said, it, in essence, it's, no matter what the criteria you want to apply, we'll work out what the most appropriate match is at this point in time for that set of criteria. And what would be really interesting then would be, what what criteria are you hearing in those conversations that people come to you with? Yeah, so when people are deploying large language models, and that's the space we work in, specifically around self-hosted large language models, there's typically three problems they will run against. So one is a question of cost. One is a question of speed. Um, and another is a question of performance, or like how good the model is. And that translates down the line to how scalable can I make my application? What's the unit economics look like, et cetera, et cetera. But broadly, they all kind of boil down to those three things. I'll add in also developer difficulty, but I'll add that into cost. And Every single use case has a different trade-off that they want to achieve in that kind of cost, speed, and, and accuracy um, triangle. Um, and what we are doing is helping them optimize that triangle, helping them optimize that trade-off space. And we do that through applying um, some very state-of-the-art uh, inference optimization techniques and serving and infrastructural techniques that allow them to hit the best trade-off that's currently possible with the technologies that's available. Um, so I wouldn't say we act as a, as a broker, but what we are is we provide that infrastructure layer. And because of our backgrounds as researchers and engineers are able to guarantee that this is always best in class. And the trade-off that we're able to give you is always the best that you'll be able to get. Um, but typically that leads to, you know, 5x speed ups, which is the difference between a real-time application and a not real-time application. It's the difference between 90% uh, cost savings, which is a huge difference when you're thinking in terms of cloud compute. Um, and we can you know, allow people to deploy the best, best models that we have available, really helping them um, overcome that performance and accuracy barrier as well. There's a couple of other criteria that come to mind that I can imagine somebody listening might might raise and I'm interested to just mention them in the, it maybe they fit in one of those criteria mm -hmm. one is sustainability so there's lots of conversations as I'm sure you're aware around the energy use and therefore sustainability impact of large language models so I'm interested to understand if kind of there's any signs of people beginning to say we'd like to pick the one that's got the least mm -hmm energy impact or most sustainable and the other is from a security point of view because there will be situations where people will want large language models at least fine-tuned in a secure environment 
I'm so happy you raised both of those. Um, so the sustainability one, I'll start with that first. So that's something internally we really care about. And we're starting to see more of the market care about it too. Now, sustainability technically is pretty much analogous with cost. So when you're paying for costs in a data center, you're paying for the energy usage. And that's pretty much the same as the CO2 emissions. So when we optimize for cost, we're also optimizing for sustainability. So when we say we'll get an 80% cost reduction, that translates to that CO2 reduction. Um, and this is something that people are starting to think about, but I would still say that it's not common in the market to think about it yet. Um, in 2025, the EU have their carbon reporting emission standards. And I think that will change the conversation about how people are thinking about um, sustainability. Um, another aspect is not many people are at the stage where they're deploying at scale yet. So they're not seeing that sustainability impact yet. Uh, but we natively uh, optimize for sustainability rather than having it as be a bolt on on the end. When we optimize models, we optimize them for cost and for sustainability. Your second point about security is a really, really excellent one. And it's one that we spend a lot of time talking with our enterprise clients about. So there's broadly two ways that you can deploy a LLM or an AI model. One is you can call an API like OpenAI. Um, and another is you can self-host. So self-host on your private cloud or self-host on your um, on-premise environments. Now we only work in the situations where you're self-hosting. So on AWS, on Azure, on GCP, et cetera, et cetera. And the main reason for that is because security and scalability and, and performance are our three pillars. And the only real way to ensure that we can get the security you need is by you managing those deployments. So we give our, our enterprises the tools to allow them to self-host more efficiently rather than say, you know, don't worry about it, we'll look after it. And then you've got to trust us with the data um, because large enterprises want to have control over their data and want to have control over their models, especially if they're going to be in business critical applications. Fantastic answer. And I'm so glad that we did go down that angle, actually, especially yeah. because you've also introduced the responsibility piece by touching mm -hmm. on regulation. So I'd, I just wanted to touch on ethics and, and responsibility because I'm, I'm imagining in the context of the services that you provide, it's it's probably less likely a conversation around some of the traditional AI ethics conversations around bias or transparency and more in the responsibility space. But but what's what's your um, the business view in terms of AI ethics and uh, AI responsibility in the context of the services that you provide? Yeah, so this is something that our clients are taking very seriously. And with because we offer infrastructure, um, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's up to our clients to to just decide how they're going to deploy these models. Um, and it's unfortunately not something we have control over. Um, and that's part of the privacy angle. But we do spend time speaking with our clients about ways that we can ensure that our models are safer by design. So how do I mean safer by design? Broadly, two ways. So one is trying to reduce hallucinations where we can, uh, because, you know, these models suffer from what's called like the Boris Johnson problem, where they say false things very, very confidently. Um, and the second thing is, um, how do we ensure that they're safe in the context of the business? So when we think about how we reduce hallucinations, there's a bunch of techniques that um, we enable natively as part of our technology stack. 
So one is um, a technique called RAG, which is where we give the model access to a database so it can query actual factual answers and figure out uh, and ground itself in truth rather than trying to hallucinate or remember. Other hallucination um, reducing techniques that we implement um, is not allowing the model to say anything that's not in that uh, database. So it can only quote, it can't um, kind of remember, and also including references back to original text so you can verify that. Um, that's what we can do on the hallucination side. And on the you know more safety side broadly, um, we always recommend to our clients, especially in these early days where people are trying to figure out the best practices with large language models, that they have a human in the loop where possible that they roll this out slowly and gradually and have the people who they're rolling it out to understand the limitations of these language models and be able to report and fix any errors that come up. And I think for now, you know, human in the loop and trying to reduce hallucination where we can um, is so, so key to making sure that we're being responsible. Um, beyond that, we also need to think about what are the situations where we should be applying AI full stop um, but that's a broader question that people have already been starting to think about in the traditional ML debate. So I think I think I read that you were um, had had funding round quite recently, so kind of very much in a growing space. How are you finding um, the attraction of talent? So when you're building your team out, a lot of people I've talked to so far have said we're an AI company, it's quite cool to work here. It's not been so difficult to attract people in. But what do you do? What's what's your approach as an organization? Yeah, it's it's right. Like we, when we send out a, a job ad, we probably get four to 500 applicants. Um, and so it's easy to get applicants, but you know, good high quality applicants are always difficult to find. In the AI space, there aren't that many people who have experience with AI. So those people are like absolute gold dust. Now, the biggest thing that we struggle with when it comes to hiring is actually when it comes is, is actually a visa issue. So um, we really struggle um, getting the visas that we need for the talent that we need because um, we're a deep tech company. A lot of the tech talent, a lot of the talent that we need isn't in the UK. Uh, and that's the biggest struggle that we have rather than finding the people. It's about, OK, how can we get you to work here? Because we all work in person in, in London. Um, yeah, that's probably um, the biggest. If, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd make the home office 20 times more efficient. Is, is there something also around when we're looking for skills in this market for products that have only just appeared? It's, it's You're not looking for... Um, experience over a period over a number of years because of course the products haven't been there so you're looking for perhaps aptitude or ability to pick things up really quickly are, th mm. are there a couple of key things that are really important for you in people that you look at that give you the best indicator that they're going to succeed in the work that you're doing so it's a really fantastic question so we are still relatively early we're still on our first 15 hires um and our ethos when it came to hiring is because the space is moving so, so, so quickly, this, as, exactly as you said, the thing that's more important than direct experience is motivation and the ability to pick things up. So if you just have raw smarts and you want to learn, then I trust that all of our people will be able to learn. So 
when we're interviewing, we obviously do subject specific interviews, but we really try and surprise people and, and give people problems that they might not have come across before. Um, I'm struggling to think of one off the top of my head, but that's something that we really spend spent a lot of time thinking about is how can we figure out whether this person is like genuinely really smart or has just kind of memorized something and it's just kind of learned something. Um, and it's the ability to solve a novel program, a novel problem for the first or a problem in a novel way for the first time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, that that's the way that we approach it. And and what it's meant is we've hired probably younger people uh, than we would have otherwise, because as long as they have the raw core technical skills um, and the keenness and ability to uh, learn, then that's fantastic for us. And um, when people are early in their career, you might argue that they're a bit more motivated or at least might be willing to take the risk on a startup. Oh, excellent. And and so to wrap all that together in my final question, which is really around ambition. And, and we, we were saying earlier, it's so difficult to predict what's happening in the market it is such a dynamic market. It is changing so fast. But but can you cast, cast your thoughts forward a couple of years or... Um, uh, what what would you hope to be kind of where would you hope to be as an organization in the work that you're doing yeah so I guess the question is what does success does success look like for us um, for us we're a core infrastructure and what I would love is for us to be the default no one even needs to think about us part of every single ml model that exists so we are going to see in the long term millions and millions and millions of separate um, AI and LLM deployments and we want to be part of a good proportion of that that infrastructure. Um, so we always talk about internally, we have a percentage that of enterprise LLM deployments that we want to be a part of. And for us, that's what success looks like. We want to just be that that core boring part of the infrastructure that no one has to think about. But at the heart of everything, which is an excellent ambition. So Mariam, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much. No, thank you so much.